0: Welcome to The People's Lawyer, a podcast from the National Association of Attorneys General, the nonpartisan organization representing America's attorneys general. In each episode, we'll explore the role of the 56 state and territory AGs as chief legal officers for their states and their work protecting the rule of law and the US Constitution. My name is Alison Gilmore, and I'm Chief Communications Officer at the National Association of Attorneys General. In this episode, Montana Attorney General and NAG President Tim Fox welcomes North Dakota Attorney General Wayne Stengem.
1: Well, I want to thank uh, my colleague to the East, uh, North Dakota Attorney General, Wayne Stengem, uh who I hope will, I can call Wayne and he can call me, Tim, during this podcast. Uh, and, you know, Wayne, you are the, the longest serving uh, attorney general in North Dakota history. I believe you were first elected in 2001. Is that correct?
2: I, I was elected in 2000, took office January 1st of 2001. That's correct. Yeah. And
1: of course, you've been the Attorney General of North Dakota during my tenure as Montana's Attorney General. So we're in our eighth year of uh, working on a number of things. And we've actually had, or I've had the opportunity to travel to North Dakota on a number of important matters and and uh, get to know you very well in the Attorney General world. I think next to Tom Miller of the Iowa Attorney General, it's my recollection that you're uh, uh, the next longest-serving Attorney General in in our nation, and, uh, and that's also that insti- correct. <laughs> yeah, and that institutional memory, uh, with your participation in the National Association of Attorneys General for so many years, has just been invaluable. And I think you are uh, soon to be uh, on the executive committee of the National Association of Attorneys General by
2: virtue of your position in the Conference of Western Attorneys General. Is that correct? That's right. I just uh, assumed the office of president of uh, the Western AGs, and by virtue of that, become a uh, member of the executive committee for an egg and I'm looking forward to that as well.
1: Well, and I know that you've served on the executive committee in the past, and uh, so this is the last few months of my tenure, not only as Montana's attorney general, but as the president of the National Association, so I'm Excited to be able to finish out my tenure uh, with having you work with us on the executive committee. Well, I again, appreciate you uh, joining us for this podcast. Uh, we've learned a number of things. I've learned a number of things about my colleagues that I didn't know, uh, but I'm always interested in learning about the different paths that people take on their journey to their current roles. And I know that you've served in the North Dakota House and Senate in the legislature for many years before being elected attorney general. And I'm curious, I've not, you know, being an attorney general was my first elected office. So I'm curious, how has your past legislative experience helped you as attorney general? And has it informed how your office interacts with both the
2: North Dakota legislature and the governor? Well it does for sure. I was actually in my third year of law school when I at the University of North Dakota in Grand Forks when I ran for the legislature and won. And so I served my final semester of uh, law school as a member of our North Dakota House of Representatives. I served there for two terms, four years, and then moved over to the Senate. And I served in the North Dakota Senate continuously for 20 years. And uh, all during all of my time, in the legislature, I was on our judiciary committee. So a lot of the laws that I now enforce or even interpret are laws that I have fingerprints on from my years of service in the legislature. You ask how it helps, and and the answer to that is it really helps enormously. The legislative assembly and serving in the legislature is a lot like, in in many respects, being an attorney general. We become colleagues and friends. We we know in the attorney general world what kind of uh, turmoil there is, what kind of challenges we face. The legislature. Is much the same way and knowing how the system actually operates and forming Friendships is something that helps a great deal because I still have uh, a few people left in the legislature who were there when I, when I was there 20 years ago, but I've also come to realize the significance of of uh, good relationships with the legislature, not the least of which is because they approve our budget. And that's, of course, the most critical thing that we have uh, uh, when we're working on what we do. We, we have the Bureau of Criminal Investigation, the crime lab that we work to establish through legislation to, uh, and for funding uh, our bureau of criminal investigations, and of course, we defend the laws that they pass. And then also have from time to time to interpret what it is that they meant when they enacted the piece of legislation. So it's critical. There are board of directors. They are they uh, they pass the laws, uh, and fortunately, I have a good relationship. A lot of the. The bills that we introduce, and in fact, as an agency, we're entitled as executive officers to directly introduce bills into the legislature. But I never do that uh, for a couple of reasons. First of all, a lot of the bills are law enforcement, consumer protection type uh, bills that are popular. And legislators like to have their names on those kinds of things. But also, if you introduce a bill as an agency head, uh, it can become an orphan. When it gets onto the floor of either house and if nobody gets up to defend it because they are their name isn't on it, it can make it more difficult to get a bill passed. So having having a good working relationship with the legislature is critical. They get to know you, they know that they can trust you, they rely on what it is that you do.
1: Wow, that's that's great, and that's probably an often Uh, overlooked role of of, uh, the 56 attorneys general, at least from the public's point of view. And I I have a similar experience. Um, We uh, have drafted a number of bills and it hasn't been me personally, but it's been people in my office who've had experience with drafting bills in the legislature. And I have uh, one of my staff members actually, actually two of my staff members have been in the legislature Um, and, and I agree with you. We, what we've done is we've chosen sponsors and worked with them and, and, you know, we've, we find people who are passionate about the issue in the bill, uh, people who are good on their feet and are good consensus builders and, um, and work with them. And we've had great success as I know you have. And I suspect too, in your experience, you know, not only working in the legislature, but now working in the AG world. It's been helpful for you to be, to have had this history of working with people from other political parties, correct?
2: Well, and that really is true too i I think when, when I get bills that or have bills sponsored, I never go just to one party. I always make sure that the sponsorship is made up of sponsors from both political parties, uh, usually in a proportionate number to the to the numbers of the legislative uh, assembly but I think that it's critical that everybody understands we're not here just to represent one party it helps too I I think, to cement the relationship. And uh, I, I think people understand that the role of attorney general for most of us were elected and were elected on, under a party uh, label. And people understand that we have a partisan aspect to what we do, but a lot of people look at us as qua- somewhat quasi-judicial, I think. They expect good, solid legal representation. We, we will defend uh, just about any law that comes along. Um, zealously because that's what lawyers as advocates do and I think that uh, having a reputation as somebody who's a straight shooter and fair to everybody is something that in the long run is very very helpful I I know and so do you Tim a number of of attorneys general who for one reason or another have a rocky relationship with their legislative assembly Um, and those are you know it is easy to commiserate with those folks because it's tough enough working with the legislature when when there's not enough money or there's a difference of opinion on some things uh, without having an adversarial relationship, and many have that, um, and, and it's certainly something that everyone should do the best they can to uh, to eliminate because life is, you know, what we do is very difficult, controversial, um, and uh, uh, having a adversarial relationship with the legislature is just another issue, another problem on top of everything else.
1: Well, that, that's, that's a great point, and, and those are some of the things that we're discussing in my presidential initiative, Transformational Leadership and Civility, is you know, how do you get along with somebody who uh, is either of a different political persuasion than you uh, or, or at least maybe just disagrees with you uh, or you disagree with them? Um, you know, are, what are the the attributes of great leaders who have been able to bring uh, folks together? And, and if, if they at least if they can't agree, they can be respectful of one another.
2: Maybe uh, uh, attorneys general, because we're lawyers, understand that better than, than most, that, that it's important to, to advocate zealously for your cause, but to understand the difference of opinions don't mean that you have to create an enemy every time you disagree with somebody on a policy issue. Right, right. And I think one of the things that the National Association of Attorneys General does
1: so well is gives us all an opportunity... To not only interact professionally and collegially, but to get to know one another and perhaps have a better understanding of, of why someone might uh, have, have a difference of opinion and why they might disagree with you uh, and at the end of the day still be able to, to socialize or, or on some other matter that you can agree on. And there's a lot of that in our world, as you know, with consumer protection, um, trying to fight human trafficking, public safety so many things that we can find that we can agree on you know Wayne you mentioned earlier that you know the legislature makes the laws uh, but there is at least one exception to that and I have a similar role here in Montana one of your duties as Attorney General of North Dakota is to issue opinions on legal questions for state government agencies and officials and perhaps maybe for uh, city or county officials too I don't know we do that in here in Montana can you explain explained the, the attorney general legal opinion process for our listeners. Um, what is an attorney general opinion? How does it work? Does it have the full force and effect of law? Uh, tell us a little bit about that. That's something that probably a lot of folks in the general public don't understand that, that uh, we, we often issue these
2: attorney general opinions. Well, we do, and sometimes when they're reported in the news, they call them rulings uh, and uh, act as though it's a court decision. That's not what these are. Attorney General's opinion are guidance that direct the activities of state agencies, state officials, executive uh, branch elected officials. And in in North Dakota, too, we we also do uh, attorney general's opinions for county commissions and city government as well. But uh, what happens and the effect of of attorney general's opinion vary all across the country. It's, It's different from one state to another. We probably have as strong a position here in North Dakota as any state because the North Dakota Supreme Court has said that the opinion that is issued by an attorney general guides state agencies and governmental entities until and unless they are overturned uh, by a court. And in fact, the case that I always rely on, and, I, and at the bottom of every opinion that I issue, I quoted. It's an important North Dakota case, and it says uh, that if officials follow an attorney general's opinion, and I'm quoting here, they will will have performed their duty, and even though the opinion thus given uh, to them may be later held to be erroneous, they will be protected by it. If they do not follow this course, they will be derelict in their duty and act at their peril. And so that's pretty strong suggestion that it's important that you get the advice of the Attorney General, just like any citizen does when they get uh, advice from their own attorney, that that is very often the wise thing to do. Sometimes statutes are written uh, hastily or without thinking about uh, some consequences and and, they're, and the law is not clear. And so the way that we do it here in North Dakota, and I think that it's a similar trajectory in other states, an opinion comes in. Um, we It is assigned to one of the attorneys in our state and local government uh, division. Uh, a reviewer is also assigned. And so the original drafter does the research drafts, a preliminary draft. Uh, and then it's reviewed by the reviewer, and then goes to the division director, uh, and then to my chief deputy, and then finally to me. So at least five lawyers have uh, looked at each and every opinion that I issue, um, and that's important because these are, first of all, they're precedents. Uh, they uh, and we need to make sure that we can assure whoever gets the opinion that they have been thoroughly research we look through our own opinions first and then uh, and then of course to see what the actual wording of the constitutional provision or the statute are um, if if uh, that's not clear we will go to legislative history um, and uh, and then they just work their way through 99% or more of the opinions uh, that I've issued, maybe not quite that high, but, but close to it, are not questioned. I mean, the, the law is clear. We know what we're doing. I don't need to intercede with my own legal theories, uh, although I do that from time to time. I got some of the best advice I ever had when I was a shiny new attorney general and I asked my friend Betty Montgomery. She was the attorney general of Ohio. And I said, when do you step in and decide what what position you want to take in an opinion? And she said, when it's close, when the question is close. And, and that's the way that we do it here because if if a If it's not clear, if there are questions, then the drafters will come in. We'll have a meeting. We'll kind of discuss where it is that I think we ought to go, or or my uh, view about what the law is, and we'll we'll work it out that way. So there are also, and this is equally important, um, not only to discuss when we will do opinions. We do them for state agencies, executive branch officials, uh, local governments, um, at the request of a state's attorney for a county or a city attorney for a city. But we do not uh, issue opinions on on facts. So, uh, and and that's important because uh, we're not here to resolve what the facts are. We're here to determine what the law is. We don't get involved with the internal operations of the judicial branch of government for obvious reasons. Yeah, we do not do an opinion. If somebody says, is there a violation of a criminal law based on these facts, we will not do an opinion regarding whether a criminal offense has occurred. Uh, if a matter is already proceeding before court, we do not issue an opinion. And then one thing that often happens, and I bet you see it too, is you have legislators who have a constituent with a legal question, and what they really want is private legal advice from the attorney general. We don't do those, and we will tell them we're not we are not here to do private legal opinions on whatever issue a constituent contacts their lawmaker about. That's
1: all very similar, Wayne, to what we do here in in Montana, and much like uh, court precedent, all of the opinions are uh, they're published, they're available public publicly, uh, and, and you know they're bound in volumes, et cetera. Um, and, and it's a great, uh, body of, of work. As you say, there's a lot of work that goes into these. And I guess, obviously from what you just said, the first thing is to determine whether or not it's proper to issue an opinion. So you, your office looks at that first to decide whether you're either going to go that route. And probably in, you know, uh, uh, in many cases, uh, you decline in, in Montana. If we decline, we might also consider a letter of advice you do a letter of advice that that doesn't in montana that doesn't have the the full effect that an attorney general opinion has but it provides them some guidance short of an ag opinion is that something you do as well
2: we used to do informal and formal opinions and as i uh, assumed office and started doing them took the position that any of course any advice an attorney here gives is technically legal an attorney general's opinion but we only have one kind of written a, a formal or informal opinion—they're just all the same—and um, we do not do. A, we would not. I mean, we give advice, of course. We've got uh, forty-five lawyers here, and they give advice to their to their client agencies all the time, uh, either written, but more typically just over the telephone when there's simple questions about how to proceed and what the law might mean, and only if it's really significant and needs the. The uh, additional uh, value of a written attorney general's opinion. Do we do one? Um, Although sometimes I'll get legislators who will call and just say we're kind of wondering, and I can tell them here's where it might likely go, uh, without telling them for sure. Um, and, and head them off on asking one or tell them that they don't really need one because we already have an opinion that says the same thing and here, that, here is a copy of that for you? Sure. Well, and that's one of the interesting things about
1: these requests is, you know, the the requester has to understand they may not always get the answer that they wanted, Right.
2: Well, that's right. You're going to get the answer that there is. And, that's, and I tell that kind of jokingly, to legislators um, tell them, look, I'm just telling you what the law says. <laughs> if they want to blame <laughs> anybody, it's you. you. You are the ones that have the power to change it, not me. And <laughs> so you, go, you can go ahead and, and then I'll tell you what that law says.
1: And you mentioned that an attorney general opinion can be overturned by a court of law. It can also be changed or amended by the legislature in many cases, too, correct? Sure.
2: Yeah, absolutely. If if we're um, interpreting what a statute says, they they have ultimate and almost exclusive authority within constitutional bounds to change the law. Now, there is one, uh, and I know you want to talk about our Sunshine laws, and and I think that this might be a good time to mention, there is one exception to uh, our rule that a citizen cannot ask and get an opinion from the Attorney General, and that is in the instance of a claim that a citizen was denied access to any governmental meeting or a record that they're entitled to have. Our Constitution says that All records and all meetings of every uh, governmental agency and any entity supported in whole or in part by government funds are open to the public unless there is a specific exception provided in the law that uh, provides that it's closed. And uh, and under the statute, any citizen can ask for an attorney general's opinion of whether they were illegally granted uh, or denied uh, access to a meeting or to records they were entitled to. And we do uh, two, three dozen of those every year. That, that's
1: uh, an important uh, thing to note, because I, I don't believe we have that in Montana. And one of the, the criticisms of, of our sunshine laws, and we have a similar law in our constitution, uh, you know, the right to know, the right to public participation. Um, we do have statutes about those matters too. But for the average person, if you feel you've been denied access, whether it be to a meeting or to a document or other public information, your recourse is to go get a lawyer and maybe go to court, which is very expensive, very cumbersome. If there are some public interest uh, law firms and lawyers that will will do those things uh, pro bono but i'll have to i'll have to go back and visit with my staff that might be something as as i leave the attorney general's office we might be able to draft a statute to, not not that we need more work to do but it seems much more uh you know it it seems a lot easier to get a good decision Uh, particularly for the average person who maybe can't afford to go to court uh, just to go to the attorney general.
2: And that's, we used to do it where you would tell people we have that statute or the constitutional provision and then just say you're on your own as far as enforcing it, but it was in 1995 that my predecessor as attorney general convened a task force and put together this bill and I'm quite familiar with it because she came to me and asked if I would be the prime sponsor in the legislature and I was and it had great support from the media and from the public and it's really worked very well um because it's quicker it's certainly and it's free to the to the citizen um, we did we do have to have, we have one person who's assigned the duty of issuing these opinions but in addition this person also will field questions from citizens who come in so we don't have to do an opinion we will we very often will just call the entity and say you're on thin ice here we suggest you give the record out or uh, uh, do things a little bit differently because you're going to get an, uh, an opinion from here and though there are no Uh, direct criminal penalties for violating the open meetings and open records laws, most public entities who get a criticism, a scathing opinion from the Attorney General saying they violated the law, take it seriously. They do not like to be publicly uh, called out for violating the law. So it does work well. Plus, you wind up with people in the office who are experts on the on the open meetings, open records laws, and I think the public will feel that they're much better served. It's very popular among the media, but they though they have no special right to any records or access to meetings. Nothing better or stronger than any other citizen of North Dakota would have.
1: Well, uh, you know, uh, I'm going to be back in touch with you after I talk with my staff. I just need to clarify that we certainly don't provide that service through the attorney general's office. I want to make sure that that we're not missing something. Of course, there'd have to probably be an appropriation with that bill. So there'd be a fiscal note with it um, because we'd have to hire someone and get them up to speed but
2: well the, the so, person well, who we... does these I should say Tim doesn't do it exclusively although most of her time is devoted to it but on our website if you look at it uh, it will talk about guidance on walking through the request process but we also then publish a uh, open meeting and open record Pamphlet for citizens and for public bodies—one for one for each—so they know what it is that's expected of them. And most of the violations are not intentional; they are they are inadvertent or they are a result of not knowing exactly what the law is. Well, we we have had some uh, um,
1: involvement in this area more recently with the COVID nineteen pandemic. After our governor. Uh, ordered that uh, large groups uh, in uh, meetings indoors be uh, stopped for a period of time. It, it raised the question for uh, how do we how does government operate, particularly as it, it as it pertains to public meetings. How do we give uh, the public the the right to access uh, these meetings with public officials? And so we work very closely with our counties and cities and, and state agencies to come up with guidance within just a few days that has worked very well for our state um, and uh, to make sure that, you know, the public's right to know and their right to participate in, in, in meetings is, is not infringed just because of a pandemic. Well, there's one other thing, uh, Wayne, that I wanna cover with you that, again, we have some s- similarities. You serve on the North Dakota Board of University and School Lands, which I believe is similar to my position on the Montana Board of Land Commissioners. Can you tell us about this special role that you have as Attorney General on on this uh, board and, and how it may be unique to Western states like ours?
2: Well, I can. There's the, Of course, the Attorney General serves on a number of boards. There are two that are very important. One of them is the Board of University and School Lands. When North Dakota and a lot of other western states especially joined the union, we were granted by the federal government uh, two sections of uh, of land in every township, Section 16 and 36, um, and were required that we utilize that money for support of the schools of the the common schools of the state of North Dakota, and so uh, our totals here in North Dakota were over 2.6 million acres that were given to us for that purpose. Into that fund also goes all of the uh, fines for violation of state statutes. That fund uh, took about 110 years to reach a billion dollars, and then luckily for us in North Dakota, under a lot of that 2.6 million acres that belong to the state, um, there was oil that was discovered, and so though it took 110 years to reach a billion dollars within eight years after that we were at two and now we're at about six billion dollars which in the common schools trust fund all of which is invested by uh, by us and the net proceeds of that are uh, given to the school children of north dakota some of that money goes to our colleges and other state institutions as well but by and large it goes to the common school trust fund for the support of children so there's a There's a sizable sum that we can add in addition to other state support for our schools that comes from that. We act, and and some people uh, don't quite understand, the members of the board do, we're fiduciaries. It is a trust that we are obligated to, under under fiduciary principles, under the statute, under the Constitution, to maximize the profit uh, that we realize from that fund. It is not a pot of money that uh, someone can come in and try to Raid at a low interest or no interest for some public, some other public purpose. No matter how good it may sound or even how good it may be, we are obligated to devote it for that purpose. And so we treat that responsibility as we should, as the utmost fiduciary responsibility that we have. And especially now, when the amount of money that we have in it has has uh, increased as much as it. Has
1: well, that's very similar to my role on the board of land commissioners. Uh, you know, we we make very important decisions, as you say, on how to maximize the profit. We also have a fiduciary responsibility for sustainability. Uh, obviously, we you know we have to make sure that the the state lands are managed uh, in a in a you know environmentally safe way, in a, in a way that's fair to everyone. Uh, with you know whether it be grazing leases or as you say oil and gas leases in montana we have coal uh, forest lands we you know uh, we have uh, logging that goes on and we have to do that in a sustainable way but very similar roles well it's been my great honor and pleasure wayne to to serve uh, these past uh, seven plus years as attorney general with such a great neighbor and as you can attest to, I frequently call you for advice and counsel, uh, maybe not so much here in later years, but certainly early on, I leaned on you and you've been a great help help to me. And we've worked on a number of cases together. And, and uh, in fact, just recently uh, won an opinion in, a, in a, an administrative board on the federal level. And so I'm looking forward to the next six months, uh, a little less than six months that we get to work together and want to thank you again for having this conversation with me and perhaps you have some parting wisdom for us
2: thank you for those kind words tim uh, one of the one of the best things about this job is how good of uh, uh, friends you can make and that is true across the political spectrum some of the Best friends that I have, those that I admire most aren't even in the same party. And actually, for a number of the issues, and you touched on this earlier, it doesn't matter what your political party is. We're working together on ending robocalls, um, supporting the rights of our consumers, law enforcement, keeping our state safe. And for most of the discussion, you wouldn't even know what political party anybody is in, and it doesn't really matter. Um, We're all in this together. We're friends. We're colleagues, and and we simply want to improve the lives of our citizens.
1: Well said, Wayne. Thank you again, and I look forward to seeing you uh, hopefully sometime soon in person.
2: I hope so too. I, uh, we very much we're looking forward to the opportunity to come back out to Big Sky. That isn't going to happen right now, but uh, in due course, we'll get through this just like we get through all of our difficulties, and we'll be able to get together and uh, meet as friends. Great. Thanks, Wayne. Bye.
0: Thank you for joining us for this episode of The People's Lawyer. We look forward to bringing you additional insights about the work of state attorneys general, including conversations with individual AGs about important legal issues in future episodes. In the meantime, feel free to visit us at naag.org or email podcast at nag.org.